Welcome to this edition of A Server's Journey with Rocky DeStefano. Hey, Larry, how you doing today? Oh, fantastic. It is another day, and we have one fantastic guest on today. We do, but first we have to introduce... Gabaroo. But first, the guest Gabaroo. of the day. Wow. Gabaroo, you have a nickname now. Gabaroo, ooh, it's like a kangaroo. Yeah, it's exotic I don't know exotic. how I feel about that, but we'll find exotic. out in the next episode. All right, so today we uh, on our show we have uh, Captain D. Michael Abrashoff. Is a former commanding officer of the USS Benfold, a graduate of the U.S. Naval Academy in Annapolis, Maryland. He also served as military assistant to then Secretary of Defense William J. Perry. You left the Navy in 2001 and became founder and CEO of a Boston-based Grassroots Leadership, Inc. Is that all still true, Michael? And welcome to the show. I'm happy to be here, Rocky. Uh, it all it is all true, except um, I'm not Boston based anymore. I'm virtual, uh, but I live in Miami Beach. My partner lives in Philadelphia, and uh, we started another consulting group called Aegis Performance Group. Oh, awesome! I yeah. I would imagine Miami Beach is probably a little bit better view than Boston most days. Um, I hate cold weather. <laughs> So while it's 87 degrees down here today, it's better than zero in Boston in the winter. Yes. Amen to that. And, and winter, I'm from Cleveland. In fact, I, I understand you're a Steelers fan. I'm a Browns fan. You have my sympathy. <laughs> yes, we need it. And Gabby is a Steelers fan. Yes, I was born into the Steelers fan legacy thanks to my father. Yes. So um, my mother's now 98. Wow. And she used to have a photo of me on her desk at home. And about eight years ago, I arranged for her to attend a charity fundraiser where Franco Harris was the keynoter. And she got her photo taken with Franco. And next time I go home, my photo is nowhere to be found. <laughs> you know, uh, sports, you think in my family. sports play a very big part in a lot of families. And Franco is up there in the Holy Trinity of uh, Pittsburgh Steelers. So, well, I wanted to share a little bit about um, and we're going to talk a lot about your book and, and, and your content. Um, but I shared this a little bit with you before we started recording. You came into my life uh, and you didn't know it, but I was a, a younger man um, and I was working at a very difficult Chick-fil-A restaurant to run. It was, uh, we, we jokingly referred to it as NATO. We had every nationality, ethnicity in one store. And we also would have these huge swings. We would be number one in our chain for two or three months. And then we would drop to almost dead last for other periods because we were right next to Disney World. And so that led to me working very hard and not very smart. Um, I tended to work 60, 70, 80 hours a week and uh, was at uh, my store on a Sunday, which we're not open, of course. And I am pulling into the parking lot and my four-year-old daughter, Ansley, and my uh, one-year-old daughter, Madison, are in the back seat. And I pull in and tell my wife, hey, I'm just going to check the store for a few moments. I'll be right back out. And my four-year-old turns to Trish and says, Mama, why are we at Daddy's house? And my heart 
sank in my chest. And as I walked into the store, it was one of my lowest moments as probably as a father and a man and a business owner. And so I knew at that point I had to change. And I knew I had some tenements of the servant leadership, servant attitude, but I didn't know how to structure being a servant and getting results. And then almost, I think it was less than two months later, you did a keynote speech at our Chick-fil-A conference and talked about your book and everything kind of came into focus. So I thank you. Uh, You know, you wrote the book for many reasons, but you didn't know how impactful you were. And I look at my career, it is drastically different now because of your book. So I, I appreciate you writing it. Well, that's high praise. I appreciate it. And um, when I worked for the Secretary of Defense, I was his number two assistant. And I, I was an individual contributor. I wasn't in a leadership role. The senior military assistant uh, was a three-star. And um, my job was to push paper through the office. And every day I'd get a four-foot stack of paper in the office. And my job was to get a yellow highlighter, highlight everything I thought was important for SecDef to read. And then I put it in the general's in basket. And at the beginning, he threw 90% of what I thought was important in the destruction bag uh, for for destruction since it's classified material. And only 10% went on to the secretary. And I was, I thought about resigning. I was so miserable. I had a 10% effectiveness rating. And before I resigned, I thought, you know what? I'm going to try to train myself to think like the general. And so every night when he went home from work, I would go into his office, take his burn bag is what we called it, the destruction bag, put it out on the desk. I'd compare everything of mine that he threw away and compared it to what he sent on to the secretary. And what I tried to do was to think like my boss and to find out what was important to him and make it important to me. And pretty soon I got that eight or nine inches of stuff every day down to one or two inches. The general would rubber stamp it and send it right on to the secretary. I, I went from a 10% effectiveness rating to maybe 98%. <laughs> and so I started to continue to play the game. In meetings, before he made a decision, I would say to myself, if I'm the general, based on what's been presented, what decision would I make? And if I made the same decision, it was like, gee, I, I can think like a general. If he made a different decision, it was there's a gap in my training. Yeah. And what that enabled me to do was to anticipate what needed to be done in the office. And I could do it before he ever asked for it. And pretty soon he started to trust me. He put me in charge of the SecDef security team, the communications team, the trip planning team. I had 45 people reporting to me in a job that historically was a individual contributor job. And you know, the funny thing, he never gave me any feedback. (laughs) You know who I got it from? His wife. (laughs) <laughs> she was one day and she came back to my desk and she said, I want to thank you for everything you're doing for Paul, because for the first time since he's had this job, he comes home at night happy. And that's what servant leadership can get you. Yeah. But you engage your people. They lift burdens off your shoulders. You can go home at night happy and spend time with those two wonderful daughters that they'll remember for the rest of their lives. Yeah. There's a great book called Creative Followership that is one of my favorite, and it talks to understanding your role 
and understanding how to add value to the people around you. And it, it sounds like you kind of nailed it right there. Mike? So it just, it's just by listening, closing your mouth and listening, find out what needs to be done, step up to the plate and you'll control your own destiny. And in these difficult times, that's what everybody needs to do is to figure out their piece and how they can control their own destiny in uncertain economic times. Mike, can you talk about how you or why you joined the Navy to begin with? Uh, I, you know, it's a great story you have, and we definitely want you to share it. Um, but kind of what what was the initial pull? Well, um, I'm six of seven kids. Uh, my father uh, made $13,000 a year. And um, if you Zillow my childhood home, <laughs> the value of my childhood home is $68,000. <laughs> And so, you know, I didn't start out on, I didn't even start out at first base. You know, I started out <laughs> in the bat, in the bat boy. And so um, the only way for me to get to college was to play a sport. And so I played football and um, I had a mediocre football career at the Naval Academy. And um, that's why I went. And then um, I hated all four years at the Naval Academy <laughs> because 80% of your classes at the Naval Academy are engineering or physics or math, which are my weak point. I can't do physics or math, but I can remember somebody's name 20 years later. I can remember Mark Miller uh, from that Chick-fil-A conference in 2003. Yeah. Um, so, um, so I didn't have the skills in, at the Naval Academy and I struggled. Um, but then when I got out of the Navy, like you, uh, I worked harder than anybody else. I would work seven days a week, 12 hours a day, and for me, it was about achievement um, and trying to, um, to be the best that I could be. And, uh, and as I rose through the ranks, uh, I got increasingly more difficult jobs, which required me to work harder. <laughs> and then the, the moment for me was when I got command of the ship. And as, as, as my predecessor was departing the ship for the final time with his parents and his wife and his kids. And as his departure was announced on the public address system, my new crew stood and cheered at the fact that he was leaving. Mm. And the thought went through my mind as I was coming up through the ranks, I wonder how many of my sailors secretly cheered whenever I got transferred. And I didn't know the answer to that question. And as a result, I didn't have the self-awareness necessary to be a leader. And so that moment was my call to action that before I can ask my people to change and improve, I need to change and improve. Yeah. And, and I, I love this part of the book because you talk about something that you did almost immediately after taking command of the ship and that you went and talked to every member on your boat or a, a service yeah. member on your ship. It's a ship. It's a ship. Rocking boat is a submarine. <laughs> Thank you very much for that correction. It's a ship, uh, which I should know from the title. But um, what what motivated you to do that? Because that that's it, I, I would imagine it's was not customary at the time. To my knowledge, it had never been done before in the history of the Navy. But as I told you, I like to know names and faces, and so that was the original reason for doing the interviews because I wanted to be able to put a name to a face. And I wanted to know a little bit about them. And so um, that's how the interview started out. I wasn't very good at it at first. 
But then once I got comfortable doing them and they, they weren't inquisitions, they were conversations. You know, tell me about your family. Uh, I got to know the names of every sailor on the ship, their spouse's name, their children's names, their hometowns. I found out, Gabby, you'll appreciate this. 25% of my crew actually liked the Dallas Cowboys. Oh, <laughs> tough. And later found out they were the bottom 25% performers on the ship. <laughs> yeah, makes sense. That, that allowed me to have a fair sense of, of trash talking between me and the Cowboys fans. And what it did <laughs> showed everybody that I was human, that, that we could uh, banter back and forth while still, you know, maintaining um, the chain of command and enforcing discipline. And what happened when, if people think you care about them, they will follow you into battle. And what these interviews showed them was that I actually cared about their careers, uh, their journeys in life, and they became more engaged, took greater ownership, and they're the ones that delivered the excellence. When I walk into one of your Chick-fil-A's, man, it's it's poetry in action, and, and everybody's smiling, they're looking in the face, and, and it, res- it depends on the teamwork working together in order to have a great customer experience, down to that person that keeps your restroom spotlessly clean. I have no idea how you do it, but uh, that's stuff that you have to cultivate uh, in order to get people to take pride um, in serving the people that, that walk through your front door or these days through your drive through And so that's, that's what I learned from the interviews, but it also gave me the opportunity to realize how smart they were. Yes. And, um, and I would say to them, you can challenge every rule, every regulation, every process, every procedure, and if you can improve a process on this ship, 1%, I want to hear from you. You know, it's the Navy. We've been around 244 years. We're not going to change the Navy, but let's make our own little piece of it the best that we possibly can. And if we can be 1% better today than we were yesterday and 1% better tomorrow than we are today, nobody's going to touch us. And you know, so uh, that leads to one of my favorite quotes because I like, and I wrote it down here, but it says as a leader, you can change your piece of the world just as I was able to change mine. And, and I love that because you're not taking on the entire Navy. You're changing your ship and the culture of your ship. Correct. And if I could just butt in really quickly, I just want to let you know, Mike, I was raised a Steelers fan. My mother, on the other hand, was a Browns fan. So I grew up in that divided household. And then after all that trauma, my father unfortunately passed away. Um, But when my mom remarried, she remarried a Dallas Cowboys fan. (laughs) So, you know, it's just, it's really nice to talk to a fellow Steelers fan. So so your mom chose badly twice. (laughs) Um, um, You talk about the ship, but what was the ship? Uh, How big was it? You know, you know, it seems like... Yeah, this is important, Larry. You're right. Tell us how many how many men, women were on the ship. So um, the ship was 505 feet long, uh, weighed 8,600 tons, and we had a crew of 310 young men and women. Um, first ship built for the Navy from the keel up to accommodate both men and women, <laughs> and the average age was 23 and a half. And out of that. Um, 310, maybe 10% had been to college. And so what we're dealing with is largely people graduate from high school, join the Navy, 
And, you know, in Iowa, they don't train you how to launch Tomahawk cruise missiles. So we have to do that on the ship. And then we have to have a robust training system to train uh, young men and women to operate a multi-billion dollar uh, platform. Yeah. So to say that you learned names and families name, it's, that's not an easy task. It took effort, although it sounds like that's kind of how you're wired. And I had, in, I made an index card for every sailor. Yes. So occasionally I could review it just to, when I had a moment, I'd sit on the bridge wing chair and review my index cards. Yeah. And uh, to this day, I, I, I still remember their names and faces. What was the response when you first uh, approached them? Um, disbelief. And they thought it was going to be the flavor of the month and that I would tire of it after a, a month or so. Uh, but I actually got more out of the interviews than they did. And um, pre, prior to my arrival, the captain's cabin was always locked. The door was shut. And that sends a signal to your people that you're unapproachable. I pinned my door open all day long. And people, when they came into my office, uh, were amazed at what the captain's cabin looked like because they had never seen it before. Mike, Mike can you share um, a, a little bit about, because you already shared what you came into, you're watching them cheer as your predecessor goes, which cannot be a comfortable feeling. It can't make you feel, okay, I can win over this team. Um, but can, can you share what were the results that your predecessor was getting? Like what were, you know, as far as your measurements and metrics within the Navy? So I was terrified <laughs> when I saw <laughs> yeah. because I didn't think I was smart enough to turn the ship around. Um, and you know, it wasn't the worst ship in the Navy, uh, but we had one of the worst retention rates of any ship in the Navy. We had had one of the highest disciplinary rates of, you know, sailors breaking rules and regulations. And, um, and in general, um, everybody kind of hid on the ship. Nobody would, would volunteer to do anything. It was just hope they wouldn't be called on. So it was people, I, it was only after I left the ship and wrote the book that I find out that each sailor had a hiding place on the ship that nobody was allowed to invade their hiding place. So that's, that's Joe's hiding place right there. I can't go in it. So uh, that's, that was the attitude. And what's interesting is I couldn't change any crew member out. And yet at 15 months later, we win the Spokane trophy, which is the award for best ship in the Pacific fleet. In years three and four after I left, they won the award for best ship in the entire U.S. Navy, which means that what we created was sustainable. But the interesting thing is that technologically, technological talent was already there. They just weren't using it. And all I did was to create a culture. I wanted to create a culture where your two daughters could come serve on that ship and you would be proud of it and they would be proud of it and that they'd get something out of it. Just like, you know, when you employ young people in your restaurant, you know, you're employing somebody else's son or daughter and you want to treat them the way you wish your daughters would be treated in the workplace. And that's all I tried to do on the ship. And what happened, they, they came out of their hiding places. They started stepping up to the plate. They started using their intellectual curiosity and improved every process. And, and they're the ones who delivered the excellence. Yeah. We had a high water mark yesterday. I was able to do, I, I still handle the orientations because I'm trying to, 
you know, we have a team of about 250 to 260 and I'm not great with names. So I like your idea and I'll probably be implementing the index card with a picture so I can routinely just review it. Um, but yesterday we got a chance to celebrate um, a mother and father who both worked for us when they were in high school, their teenage son coming to work. And the reason why that was so special to me is you don't send your kids into a terrible environment. So it, it meant that we did something right with the parents and created a good culture to the point where they wanted their son to work there too. So what was happening when, when sailors would leave Benfold previously, they had such a miserable experience, they'd go back to their local communities and counter-recruit against you. Yeah. And that's the last thing you want is former a member, you know, crew, former staff to be out in the community bad-mouthing you. And so what I try to do is to create an organization where they would leave and say to their family members and cousins and, and neighbors, um, that's where you want to serve because you'll get something out of it. That's right. And that's what you've demonstrated is when those parents send their child to work for you, they're recruiting for you instead of recruiting against you in the community. As a Cleveland Browns fan, I can tell you that I know there's active recruiting against the Browns. When somebody survives their tenure there, they're not saying, hey, this is the place to be. So it makes it harder to uh, sign free agents or a rookie doesn't you know, jump up and say, yes, I'm going to Cleveland. So, yes, it's a very important point. I got news for you, Rocky. Nobody recruits against the Browns. You guys do it to yourself. <laughs> well, it's something about having seven that's coaches in seven years. But that's what we were doing. We were doing it to ourselves. Yeah. You know, business is hard enough as it is without being your own worst enemy. Yeah. Right. We want to thank so much, Mike, for coming on. And I think the content here today has been pretty extraordinary. And I think uh, we are going to have another episode here. Yeah. So next week, we'll, we'll learn more about what Mike did. Yeah. And I think anytime you get a chance to learn from somebody who has really um, kind of put their Ship on the line. Yeah, put their. You know, I was looking <laughs> for another. Ship an, on the line. <laughs> was that? I was looking for another analogy, but that's probably the best one. So, but uh, now, anytime you get to have some real world experience um, with something that's life or death, uh, it definitely helps your leadership journey for sure. Thanks to ACS Creative for developing our website, aservicejourney.com. So when it comes to creating a website, it pays to go to the pros. That's why we went to ACS Creative. They do brochures, logos, direct mail, ad campaigns, and websites. They don't play games with your money. Contact ACS Creative on the internet at acscreative.com. Hey, this goes out to our server's journey community. As always, you can click the links in the descriptions to find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and a new thing, or you can become a supporter of the show on Patreon. For as little as $3 a month, you can gain access to exclusive content, behind-the-scenes material, receive a server's journey community sticker, and a shout-out on the show. So, as always, help us to create leaders worth following. Well, until next time, Rocky, I am your ever-faithful companion, Larry. And as always, we have 
our assistant. What do we call her yet? Our special assistant, snarky niece, yes. Gabby. Subject matter expert. Yeah, if anybody has a great nickname for me, yeah. only good nicknames, okay? No insults, please. I don't put myself on the internet for insults. You can, Garber, send, you can Gar- send the insults to me. And Gabaroo? <laughs> Gabaroo didn't work? No, Gabaroo was a Ooh. unmitigated failure. Ooh. <laughs> Anyways, uh, as always, we want to thank you guys for listening. Uh, we really want to become great leaders, and we more than anything else want you to become somebody worth following.